Today we turn together in the Word of God to Matthew chapter 5, and I'll read verses 38 to 48. We again welcome those visiting among us. Some of us are here after a time away. Good to have you back. Some of us are visiting, having been here years ago. Good to have you with us. And some of you might be here for the first time. So you may see names and, or faces that you don't recognize today. An encouragement to greet each other in Christ as we continue now in this series in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, picking up in Matthew 5, 38. Hear now the word of God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus sits down on a mountain, not like Pike's Peak kids, but more like a large hill, and he speaks to his family. He talks to his disciples who are a part of the kingdom of God about kingdom life. And he describes for us in these chapters what a beautiful, holy life looks like. First and foremost, what he's describing, in many ways, is himself. Christ is the law keeper, the law maker, the law giver, the one who has all authority. He gives the law, explains the law, he keeps the law, he applies the law to his people. And we see in just chapter 5 of Matthew, six times Jesus say, you have, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, the last two of those we find this morning. Jesus is not going against the law. Jesus is not throwing the law away. He's showing how the law is a matter of the heart. It always has been. He's teaching us not to take away from the law or add to the law. And he's reminding us this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Not murder, not lust, not dishonesty. And today, not a raging, vile hatred. 
of all that Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, these are some of the most difficult commands he gives. What does it look like to love our enemies? To live a life without hypocrisy or sham or pretending? Where we, with new hearts by faith in Christ, ask ourselves, how can I please my Heavenly Father by loving the enemies that I face? First, what does this not mean? It means do not retaliate. You might remember these verses, older adults, as a kid reading through them, or children, maybe you've memorized them. I remember when I was about in seventh grade memorizing these verses and wondering, what does this mean? Walking two miles, taking off and giving someone my cloak, what's Jesus talking about here? Well, a big picture outlook is telling us this. He's speaking of wisdom, and he's contrasting the life of the flesh versus the life of of the Spirit. He begins with an example from what's called the law of retaliation or the law of the talon, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Three times in the Old Testament we see this phrase used. Once in Exodus 21 where it's talking about a woman who's pregnant who's harmed and if she or the baby is harmed the penalty should be an, an according guilt to the person who did that in terms of what happened to them. That's the first use. The second use of this phrase, Leviticus 24, applies to when someone injures their neighbor. So if someone steals a loaf of bread, kids, they don't, in the Old Testament, chop off their hands. Or they do, don't do a lay mis, Jean Valjean, and send him to prison for five years where he ends up spending much more than five years in prison, meaning the penalty should be in accord with what has been done. That's what Jesus is bringing out here from Leviticus 24. The same thing is true in Deuteronomy 19, where we see eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, in relation to a false witness. Deuteronomy 19, if someone deliberately tries to get someone else in trouble, the malicious witness receives whatever penalty he was trying to impose upon the innocent one. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is a judicial principle given to Israel to limit retaliation, given to punish wrongdoers, to protect the community, not for personal revenge. The Pharisees had taken this law of retaliation and twisted it. And they had applied it in every way to someone who has insulted them. Jesus is saying, not so fast. That's the first example. Verse 39, the second one. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, Jesus says, turn the other to him also. Now, what does that mean? Well, in terms of the Old Testament, rabbinic law, to hit someone with the back of the hand was twice as insulting as hitting him with the flat of the hand. And Jesus here mentions right cheek, which some people think means he's talking about a backhanded slap. 
a slap against your honor. Ancient Israel, like all ancient cultures, was a shame and honor society. So if someone slaps you, what do you do back? You slap them harder. If someone challenges you, what do you do more? You challenge them even more. And there would be duels to the death over stuff like this. Jesus says, that's not how my citizens live in my kingdom. Another example. If someone wants to sue you, verse 40, and they want to take your your tunic, give them your cloak as well. And again, kids, you see these things and it seems this doesn't make sense. Because I bet you kids have more than one undershirt and more than one blanket, right? In the Old Testament times, a lot of people didn't. And there was a law in Israel that if, if someone was being sued, they could take your undershirt, but you couldn't and wouldn't have to give them your outer cloak because that's what would keep you warm at night. In Israel, it would get cold often at night, kind of like even today in the desert. But Jesus says, if they sue you, even if it's wrong, and they get the undershirt, give them your blanket. What's going on? Another example. This one might seem to be the most strange. Someone says, I'm going I'm to make you go one mile with me. Jesus says, no, you go two miles. This is not talking about a two-mile walk. It's talking about the context of the Romans. A soldier in this day, according to the law, could say to any person, young or old, weak or strong, carry my equipment. And they could force someone to carry it for a whole mile. Major, heavy equipment. And Jesus says, if they do that, tell them, I'm going to walk another mile. You're scratching your head. Do you remember Simon of Cyrene? Carrying the cross of Jesus? That's most likely a part of what's going on here in terms of the culture of that day. And then Jesus gives one more. If someone wants to borrow, give them what they need. These verses have been misunderstood. Do not resist the one who is evil, verse 39, is not an absolute requirement. Paul resisted Peter. Do you remember that? When Peter was denying the gospel by refusing to eat with Gentiles. In love, Paul resisted him. We are told to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Jesus does not teach non-resistance. He doesn't say if you are suffering unjustly, just keep taking it. Just keep enduring it. He's not saying let evil have its way. We do resist evildoers who tempt us to sin. That verse has been misunderstood. Turning the other cheek. Jesus in verse 39 is not giving a political manifesto. This is not a social policy. This is not a platform for any political party. This is not forbidding self-defense. This is not pacifism. The state has the power of the sword to exercise it according to the law of the land. Verse 40, 
if anyone sues you. Jesus is not saying you can never go to court. He's not saying you can never hire a lawyer. He's not overturning the rule of the law either. So how do we understand this? As one man says, these verses explain what's called hyperbole, exaggerated language to make a point. Jesus is not saying, okay, give someone your winter coat and your raincoat and your boots, then we would literally be left with no clothes. A lot of people couldn't physically carry Roman equipment of war for two miles. That that would be almost impossible. So Jesus is not saying you have to do that. In fact, Scripture interprets Scripture here, and when Jesus himself was struck in the face in John 18 by a member of the Sanhedrin, he didn't turn the other cheek to be slapped again. He answered him. Paul himself in Acts 16 is whipped and thrown in prison. He says, what you did is against the law. I'm a Roman citizen. This does not teach be a wet noodle. Not the point. Give to everyone who begs. That's true along with 2 Thessalonians. If someone doesn't work, they don't eat. Do you see how the Bible doesn't contradict itself, but Scripture interprets Scripture? The other extreme, if you want to run from the overly literal to the opposite side, is to toss it all out. And that's not what Jesus is saying here either. We need wisdom. How do we interpret this? He's talking of individuals who are being insulted. And how do we respond when that insult comes? Do we retaliate? Do we say, you hit me, I'm going to hit you harder. You criticized me, I'm going to take you down. You physically hurt me, I'm going to kill you. Our culture today is preaching that. They say, don't just get even, but get ahead. Don't just hate, but destroy. Don't just disagree with someone, but slaughter them. As we look at history, one man says, we see societies where this begins to happen, and the next step downward is to say, this person who is my enemy isn't even human. Genocide. Rwanda, 1990. Almost a million Tutsis were slaughtered by the Hutus. History reminds us of old blood feuds, doesn't it? Do you remember the Hatfields and McCoys from social studies, late 1800s? These families in Appalachia were going at each other for 30 years and even longer. The case made it up to the Supreme Court. How about the Old West, Wyatt Earp, coming to try to install law and order? Or Aaron Burr shooting Alexander Hamilton, 1804. In a culture of rage, how do we respond? Now, in our day and age, we often see rage, sometimes it's real, sometimes it's pretend, with sports teams. Not only 
must the Vikings win, but the Packers must lose. Alabama and Auburn, Duke and North Carolina, Hope and Calvin College, Division III basketball, it's everywhere. Who are your enemies? When I say that, we all have people come to our mind right now. Some of them are public enemies. Some of them are enemies of Christ, his church, his gospel. They hate Christians. They persecute Christians. You can think of them. Dictators or politicians that you know are rampaging against the Lord. The Lord knows that too. But other enemies are personal. And this is where it gets personal. A boss, a colleague, a former friend, a neighbor, an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, an ex-spouse, a current spouse, a sibling, a parent, an in-law. I mean, the, the list runs deep and wide. And it's different for all of us here tonight, today. <laughs> and you know the relationship, and it's messed up, and it's estranged, and it's not the way it should be. You know, maybe in your mind, that person insulted me, they hurt me, they mistreated me, and deep down, I wish they would get what I have experienced. I wish they would get it more than I experienced. Cain, I'll avenge a man 77 times in the Bible. This is partly why we like Gladiator and Batman. We see him get that guy. The Joker, he's got to go down. And that settles with us. And there's a desire for justice that's a good desire, but this is talking about revenge. This is talking about, in my mind, and your mind, remembering something that happened and holding a grudge and bringing it out like Gollum does his ring and looking at it and meditating on it and chewing on it and mentally thinking, I'm going to do this, and they deserve that, and strategizing, and thinking about retaliation, and holding grudges, and being aloof to that person, or cynical, apathetic, snobby. These things are all too common among Christians. The desire for retaliation is deep and dark, and dirty. Jesus, Kevin DeYoung says, would not agree with Inigo Montoya. That six-fingered man, where is he? I will find him and I will tell him, you killed my father, prepare to die. His whole life is consumed by it. And so it is with a lot of people. And their revenge and bitterness eats them up as they're thinking about what they want to do to someone else. Jesus' point is, in personal relationships and interactions, the focus should not be on retaliation. It should be a gracious response to being insulted. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament, who by God's grace had one horrific thing happen to him after another from his brothers. And when he saw them, he could have exacted revenge. But he fed them, he clothed them, he loved them, he forgave them. That's the way of Christ. 
That's a God-given grace to him. This is not something he could do or you and I can do on our own. Let's contrast Joseph with the story of the last banana. Daniel Doriani. If you want to make someone angry, accuse him or her of something they didn't do. Kids, you know that. Mom and dad see that the room is messy, and you realize your brother or sister did that. You cleaned it up, and you're getting in trouble, and you don't like it. Here's a, a, fictional, a fictitious story. A wife. Why did you eat my banana? I told everyone not to eat the last banana. I needed it for lunch. The husband. I ate the last banana, but you didn't tell me not to eat it. The wife. I certainly did. Ten minutes ago, I called out, nobody take the last banana. That banana is for my lunch tomorrow. Husband. Ten minutes ago, I was in the shower. How am I supposed to hear you talking about your precious banana when I'm in the shower? If you would think before you talk once in a while, you wouldn't accuse me of such nonsense. Even at home, we're quick to defend our honor verbally. If you would think once in a while... That's retaliation. That's what Jesus is talking about in our heart, in our life. Doriani says, turn the other cheek. Let God defend you. Let others defraud you. A man who has been humbled by his sin, a man who knows he is guilty and redeemed by grace alone, will not protest too much at a false charge, he says. Why? Because we are like criminals who are guilty of a hundred crimes, but who, oddly enough, are not guilty of the charges perhaps at hand. Still, even if we did not commit the act in question, we did something else just like it. In a rough way, we merit the charges. It's in those hard times we find out what's in our hearts, isn't it? When we think I'm growing in the Lord and now I'm hurt by someone and now I'm responding with revenge. A heart consumed with hate, Lincoln Duncan says, is not big enough for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This heart, Duncan says, perhaps has never tasted of the love of God itself. And if it's a Christian heart, there must be growth to happen. Jesus is teaching forgiveness and forbearance. The only way we can live this way is as those united to Christ, as those who trust in him. We have confidence in Christ. We are righteous in Christ. Our names are written in heaven, and that changes everything. It's not about getting our pound of flesh here and now. We're not secular pragmatists. It's not all in this world. The principle for the Christian in the age of the new covenant is mercy. God's justice will be poured out when Christ returns. That's what we read in Romans 12. We leave judgment to God. Yes, those who are committing crimes should go to jail. Yes, the evildoer should be stopped. But don't take it on yourself, Christian. 
to destroy the reputation of the one who harms you, to wish bad things to happen to them, to desire their pain and destruction. Yes, evil is a big deal. We overcome evil with good because we believe that God sees the good and the evil, and God will do what is just and what is right. We see this mercy at the cross. Jesus dies for his enemies. He doesn't call down eye for eye. He pours out mercy. He has compassion. And we who have that living hope in Christ are called and equipped by the Spirit to not retaliate. Secondly, we are called more than that and equipped to love our enemy. Loved ones, the law doesn't just say, don't do this. But as it's written on our hearts, it becomes our delight in Jesus. And this one, love your enemies, really strikes at the core of our pride. You have heard it was said, Jesus says, Matthew 5, 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That exact phrase was not found in Leviticus 19, 18. The Bible speaks in the Old Testament and the New of loving our enemy, loving the stranger. And yet, as you read your Old Testament and New, you'll find imprecations, won't you? You'll find in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, warfare of total destruction. The Canaanites need to be wiped out. You read in Psalm 139, I hate your enemies, O God. I hate them with a righteous hatred. This is called intrusion ethics. The final judgment is pictured in this. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah as well. What's happening in the Old Testament here is a type of the future judgment to come when Christ will return is taking place. And when we read those imprecations, or when we read, we read Revelation 19, fallen is Babylon, that's where we look to the day of Christ's return. But we don't classify people and say, I'm going to call down judgment on your head a la James and John on the Samaritans. Remember that? If we do that, we ourselves will be judged along with them. There is no one who is righteous, not one. We all are sinners, and we need the alien righteousness of Christ, the curse-bearing death of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ to cover for our sins. The Pharisees had taken those verses about imprecations, and they had applied it to just about everyone. For the Pharisee, it is, who don't I hate? I only love a certain, very narrow type of person. But everyone else, I hate him. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Who is my neighbor? Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus said your neighbor is anyone who comes across your path that you're in a position to help. In this passage, Jesus says, your neighbor 
is your enemy. The law points to love, doesn't it? Extending from friends to neighbors to enemies. Leviticus 19.33, when a stranger sojourns in the land, you shall love him as yourself. Why? Because you were a stranger in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Jesus says, in the new covenant age of mercy and gospel expansion, this is not a time to wipe out sinners from the face of the earth. This is a time where the gospel goes forth, where sinners are called upon to repent and believe in Jesus, and where the church grows amidst persecution, because that's who Jesus is talking about here often. Like the Beatitudes, those who persecute you, those who falsely say things against you that are not true. Do you trust me, the Lord says? Loving our enemies, this does not mean enabling them to do evil. This does not mean calling evil good and saying, oh, that's wonderful. This does not mean they escape the consequences of crimes. This does not mean we put ourselves in danger unnecessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean the relationship has to be restored. David loved Saul as he ran from Saul. Love and discipline are not contradictory. What does it mean? It means to love as God loves. This is remarkable. In verse 45, theologians speak here of what's called God's common grace. Meaning, God shows favor to all people he has made. God has a non-saving love, what's called a common love, to everyone he's made. The sun comes up on the evil and the good. The crops of the believing farmer and the crops of the unbelieving farmer grow. And in the rain and the sun and the common grace of God, you see God's common favor on all of his creation. So we can say God loves mankind because the sun comes up and the crops grow. We can say God loves me a sinner because the Bible tells me so. God's saving love for his people is not the same as his common grace, love, and kindness to all creation. His common grace is temporary. It will end on judgment day. His saving love to us in Christ is eternal, and the Holy Spirit is the down payment of that. Verse 45 is brought up to say this to us. You are to love your enemies because God loves his enemies. God's common grace love for all humanity is the model for how we are to love indiscriminately. Our motivation is to be like our father. We are his children. We are to have the family resemblance. Much like your kids resemble you in physical ways and personality ways and other ways. What does a Christian look like? He or she looks like his father in heaven. We reflect Christ by grace. We are called to be perfect, verse 48. Now, this is the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. We're not there yet. 
So in this context, it's speaking of maturity, growing to be more like Jesus. How does that look? Verse 46. Oh, it means, this is really personal, isn't it? Think about the tax collector, he says. The tax collector loves other tax collectors. He loves other people who love to rip people off. If that's what we do and we don't love any more than that, then we're no different than a pagan. Now, distinctions matter theologically. There are different types of words for love. Jesus is not saying you have an emotional or romantic relationship with your enemy. (laughs) He's using the word here, agape. You love your enemy who is unlovable in and of himself. You love your enemy because this is how God, by his grace, is equipping you, even though it goes against every instinct you have. Here's one application. Many churches, one person says, seem cold and unwelcoming to visitors. But almost every church thinks it's friendly. Interesting. Have you ever thought about why? Doriani. Because the members are friendly with their friends. They greet everyone who greets them. This is Doriani. That is not noteworthy. Genuine love keeps an eye open for the quiet, the awkward, the isolated, the friendless, and seeks them out and looks around at visitors. And if you're a visitor with us today, I hope and pray you've been welcomed or you will be welcomed warmly. I'm not saying this to come down on us. I think by God's grace, I hope, we should talk to the visitors, we welcome visitors, but I I shouldn't speak so definitively for the visitors, should I? Jesus is saying, if you only love people with your personality, your friends, the people you click with, the people that you have the same hobbies as, the people you agree with on this point and that point, the people who haven't offended you, that's not Christian love. That doesn't take the spirit of God. That's what the tax collectors do. That's what the unbelievers do. They scratch the back of those who scratch theirs, and they are cold to those who are cold to them. That's our tendency. We can't fix this. Loved ones, this takes the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts to have an agape, complete, consistent, unwavering love for someone that hates me, for someone that's hurt me, for someone that has never loved me. Jesus says, pray for the Spirit to produce this in you, that a love would be implanted in our hearts by God that helps us to love without expectation of anything coming back, with no expectation of reward in this life, except the only one that matters, the reward from our Heavenly Father, he says. Christian, you're different. Let the world rage and hate and destroy with the news of the day, the greatest grievance of the day. But as a church, we are called as a new society to love our enemy. 
Luke tells us in chapter 6 what this looks like in practice. Speak well of your enemy, Luke 6. Listen to them. Don't shout at them. Don't spread false rumors about them. Don't make them look bad. Love with your speech. Luke 6. Do well to your enemy. Corey Tenboom, in prison in World War II, would tend to the needs of some of the guards who got sick. This requires wisdom. But as wisdom would have it, in different contexts, it means going to them, acknowledging their dignity, showing them hospitality, welcoming them into our homes, loving the stranger. Practical love, gracious generosity is how we let them have our cloak, Matthew 5.40. Be a channel of mercy, not a cul-de-sac, so that the mercy of God that comes here doesn't just stay here and die here like a bog that's filled with filth, but by the Spirit it flows out. Don't refuse them help if there's a need. Don't declare a perpetual war on them. Don't oppress them. Overcome evil with good. What does it look like? Pray for them. To like people who like us is normal. To pray for people and love people who hate us is Christian, Kevin DeYoung. Supernatural. Praying for those who harm us Remembering Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus prays that. There are 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost. Stephen prays something similar as he's being martyred. And Saul was there watching it, participating in it. And Saul was converted. And Saul is, of course, Paul the apostle. Pray for your enemy. Pray that God would convert them. Pray that God would save them and bring them to Christ. How does this look in an age of hate and rage overload? Consider what you take in in terms of social media. Neil Postman said many years ago, our access to information and news from all over the world, gives us something to talk about, but often does not lead to meaningful action. Interesting point. He said we can spend hours looking at headlines and miss loving our child in front of us or our neighbor next door or praying for the person down the street who doesn't know Jesus. And we can rage about it and show hatred rather than loving the stranger who lives next door. It's not an either-or. Yes, we should know what's happening. Yes, we should be involved as God calls us to be. But he brings up a good point. Use technology to connect with real people. Are we spending more time in remote digital controversies than concrete real-life relationships in church, in school, in neighborhoods, Emotions can spread through social networks, one man says, like the flu or a cold. 
a research study of social media users said, we pick up on and we mirror the emotions we see in our social media feed. This person said, if you read a nasty message and sarcasm and a personal attack, often we mimic that and mirror that in our relationships. A heart issue. What am I taking in? What am I consuming? Jonathan Edwards, the strength of the soldier of Jesus is a steadfast maintenance of holy calmness amidst the storms, injuries, hatred, evil in the world. True fortitude, Edwards says, is to keep calm and carry on. Dear Christian, we do that as we're focused on the gospel. Jesus was hated by his enemies, mocked, scorned, beaten, crucified. It is at the cross, dear brother and sister, where we learn to love our enemies because it is at the cross that we see we were the enemies Jesus died for. God showed kindness to me. God brought me to, my, to himself. And you can never love your enemy, neither can I, unless you're staying near the cross. Unless you're seeing that Jesus lived the love he commanded and he gives the love he lived. Now the Holy Spirit puts on our hearts the reminder of what God has done for us in Christ. And when we think that person doesn't deserve to be treated kindly, we remember neither did we. And by God's grace, we reflect this aspect of God's mercy to our enemy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father, fix our gaze on Jesus. Fix our hearts on the return of Christ. Help us remember we have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We have the promise of eternity. Oh God, help us by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit to reach out in love to those who persecute us, to those who hate us, to our enemy. We can only do this as we stay near the cross, as we pray that the mind of Christ would dwell in us richly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.